0: Thanks for tuning in to the Bluegrass Printmakers Podcast. My name is Stephen Wiggins, and today I host Joseph Velasquez, And he is one of the founding members of Drive-By Press, a mobile printmaking press that would go to fairs, colleges, music festivals, and more, and print up woodblock T-shirts live for people and give them to them and sell them. So we talk about the origin of Drive-By Press, how it fits into the history of printmaking and the current projects he has going on and all the amazing adventures he had as being part of drive by press you want to follow drive by press go to drivebypress.com also check them out on facebook twitter and instagram and make sure you also like comment share and subscribe the podcast Uh, We're on Google Play, iTunes, and SoundCloud, and let's get into this episode. So, you're listening to the Bluegrass Printmakers podcast, and today I have a very special guest on the podcast. We have Joseph Velasquez of Drive-By Press. Uh, Hello, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for uh, doing this. I know it was kind of crazy. seems like every time I do a podcast here... There's like Skype fails me or Google Hangouts fails me. So um, I really appreciate your flexibility. (laughs) Hey, no
1: problem. You know, much of the way is printmaking, man.
0: You know, yeah, exactly.
1: You
0: You print. It becomes
1: process.
0: You got to follow. Exactly. And um, the technology, it's even crazier. So um, (laughs) I just wanted to. Well, say thank you and welcome to the podcast. And I also wanted to say, um, shoot, that's the wrong way. I wanted to say, um, well, for those of you that um, aren't familiar with Drive-By Press, maybe could you introduce them to what you're about and how you got started with Drive-By Press and printmaking?
1: Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I'll go in somewhat of a chronological order because it will make a little bit more sense with the timeline. Right. Um, but printmaking, uh, I was a uh, creative writer, uh, English major in college, and I had to take my fine art credit. And I walk into the studio and I see this guy this just looks like a little bit slightly shorter and uh, a little stockier version of myself, plus like twenty years and I see this guy he's pulling a print right off of a block and i would never seen this before and I see him pulling up and I was like hey what's that and he said this is a woodcut and I just pulled a print and I was like man that is amazing and it was something of a ridiculous image it was like Dracula and like a hot rod cruising down the road with the money and it was, it was just like a fun image like it just like, like it was fun to create and this guy goes here you can have it and I said watch, I'm going to make another one. Wow. And he just started inking up the block right there, and I was captivated. Right. And I was like, you know, what is this? And, you know, that guy is John
2: Hancock, of oh, the uh, amazing nice.
1: Hancock brothers. And, you know, one of the the big daddies of the Outlaw Printmakers. So that was my print papa. And from that point, um, you know, he I kind of followed in his shadow when he went to Frogman's print and paper workshop in Vermilion, South Dakota. And that summer... I took a workshop, and Michael Barnes was teaching the, uh, a monoprint workshop, man, and this dude is like a king of lithography, and man, his knowledge with monoprints is just insane, you know, wow. you don't see it in his main work, but I'm taking this class with him, and I'm sitting next to this real tall dude, big, tall, older dude, you know, uh, he's just like real excited, We're like, hey man, can I see a sketchbook, and I'm like, yeah, and they're like, sure. hey man, that one's pretty cool, you, you should do this, and I'm like, hey, thanks, and you know, we're going back and forth, and I was like, can I see your sketchbook? And we're just talking. And I go to lunch, and this kid walks up and he goes, hey, man, uh, uh, are you buddies with Bill Fick or what? You guys are huh. just going back and forth. And I was like, who? Oh, my gosh. And he gosh. was like, that's Bill Fick. And I was like, who's Bill Fick? And he was like, you're an idiot. You don't know. <laughs> and I had no idea, but, you know, I got, uh, I was sitting right next to this amazing filmmaker in his own right, right next to him. who was just taking the
0: class like I was. And
1: was as humble as could be. And that's another thing that just really captivated me about printmaking is, you know, the the degrees of humbleness and of mentorship that exists with, you know, uh, an unspoken, like, uh, you know, club
2: that we have together of process. We're talking
1: about a technique and a process that was the guild system, man. And you couldn't go to school to learn it. You had to study with somebody, an apprentice. And they didn't want to just show anybody because then you're going to open up a shop and you're going to take bread out their mouth. So they right. were very safeguarded with this information back in the day.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now that we got it in academia, uh, when we get these cats that know all this stuff and they got this willingness to, to share it, it's for the love of the process, man. It's for the love of the continuation, right? Uh, to see where it goes. And that love right there—that's what like captivated uh, the next move, which was nice, like, you know. After Frogman's for a couple summers, I then. I gained some attention in my portfolio, and I was offered a ride with, uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison,
2: So wow. I had to go to school there, and, man, I'm, you know, small-town kid, man, and
1: that school was kind of intimidating, because I went in there fully, aware you know, it was the number one for making school, you know, I felt so out of my element when I first got there, right.
2: and, um, not only just because I came from a small school, man, but also I was,
1: you know, the only person that was Latino. And, you know, um, it was kind of exotic there. And I totally played up on that conceptually later on. Um, you know, and I found out that the snow wasn't the only cold light thing there. <laughs> uh,
2: but I really enjoyed
1: myself, man. And I. I, right. I, I
0: Right, okay. You know, we we didn't just focus on process. And so, you know, we we knew about
1: Cenefilder, man, and Cenafielder when he came up with lithography, man, he literally put a stone in a suitcase, right, got a dowel rod, put a scraper bar, made a temp in, and he walked around Europe uh giving demonstration on a process that he created. Oh my god.
2: Uh, and he would yeah. walk into places, he would ink up the
1: stone, he would blow their minds because the image wasn't there, and it just comes up like magic. Right. He put the paper down, he would collapse the suitcase, he would tighten up the belt, crank it through, open it up, and people were like, What? <laughs> I mean, it was the most mobile printer right there. Right. And, right on. you know, this is before copyright and trademark, man. So after this dude went and showed everybody that, they were like, No, nah, no thanks, we don't want to buy it. And then he left, and then they just copied him.
2: Oh, and my God. He died gosh. a
1: poor and broke man.
2: <laughs> Dang. <laughs>
1: why the midwest was so heavy in uh printmaking and why some of the top uh printmaking lithography schools were right there in the midwest Mm -hmm. and you know it's because of industry it's because of industrialization at the time when all that stuff was printed on litho stone man there was all these presses in chicago and you talk to some of these old printmakers from back in the day right there and you come to find out when many of those shops closed they were literally throwing those stones into Lake Michigan. What? So it was using? Yeah, did? man. Yeah, oh. well, at that time, like, it was just the changing of the technology. Right. Academia didn't have it. And many of the presses were donated to the closest, largest local universities.
2: Huh. And so
1: that's why you had this emergence of the print programs, uh, because they had all the gear. And so then the schools just went out, found the right people to come plug in to, you know, to teach those processes.
2: Wow. And
1: so, you know, yeah, we learned that there, and that guy's, you know, I, right, right, this is where we're going with printmaking, and, all right, you know, being a little bit out of place. And I teamed up with another guy from the South, Greg Manning. He was from Nashville, Tennessee. I'm coming up from Austin, Texas. Huh. We're living now in Madison, Wisconsin. There's a lot of snow. And to be honest, man, the first time I had ever seen snow was in a damn Thomas Kincaid painting. Right, <laughs> yeah. And then I right, came to yeah. Wisconsin, and, the and, painter then it of cold and it burned. <laughs> so got there and you know they were asking us many of the faculty like why does this need to be a print you know and this isn't the print faculty this is the other faculty that you have in the grad program which is a really great question to ask right. as an artist but like but, but why does this need to be a print how come it just can't be a drawing hmm. and for me the most obvious was because of the multiple mm-hmm. and I would tell them my argument point is you know printmaking in this process it's the only medium that allows you to ride uh, the social elevator of the ivory tower from the bottom floor, which is for everybody, to all the way to the top, which is the high culture museum, gallery culture, oh. and all the way through the chamber of academia,
2: hmm.
1: right? Printmaking goes all the way from the bottom to the top. And why I say this is, because is printmaking, I can make a woodcut, and I can print it up on paper, go out on Michigan uh, Avenue
0: and uh, in Chicago and I can wheat paste, man, in the alleys. Right. I can wheat paste up by the train, you know, and I can go to town and people can walk by and they can see that work. Mm-hmm. You know? It's totally, and, uh, like, it's public art and everybody can view it and enjoy it and it's usually always right. something urban and democratic. The exactly. democratic, uh, I can't say that word, the just oh, yeah. for everybody it's just like everybody can enjoy it and everybody has access to it it's like that's part right. of that's and part of the, the thing, thing i do yeah like i teach at the community center i teach printmaking and i just teach people that are just off the street and they want to learn how to do it and they want to adapt it from their old skill set and so that's what i love it's like you can spread it to everybody yeah Yeah, that that accessibility is a big thing. And,
1: you know, the thing is, is it's not just about wheat pasting or making it to the public. That's one level with that same block.
0: Exactly. With that
1: same block, you can also print on a Mm T-shirt. And with that same block, you can also put on some fine art paper, put a mat around it, and enter it into an exhibition or a juried exhibition. So this could happen. A kid can get off the train, be wearing the shirt you bought, walk by the street art you pasted, walk into the gallery where it's shown behind glass.
2: Hmm. That's
1: why I say printmaking can go from the bottom to the top. Right. And that's what I would argue for when I was in grad school. And then, you know, they started asking questions, like, you know, where do you guys see printmaking going? What do you want to do? And to be frank and honest, Greg uh, Greg and I, uh, we were just like, hey man, we were getting drunk on the patio and we are like, you know what? We were talking about accessibility, like you and I, about making it for the people accessible and like printmaking, is something that's done on a uh, 2,000-pound press that's typically in a basement. And it's not accessible to the general public. So how do we do this? We mobilize. Mm
2: -hmm. How do we
1: mobilize? Put a press in the back of a truck, and we drive around the country giving demonstrations and talk about this whole history of with people. And we show them prints. And, you know, when you work with tandem with somebody, it's like running
2: uh, with somebody. Mm
1: -hmm. You run alone, who knows what your time is going to be. But you run next to somebody, you are going to run your best time. And that's what it's, working, uh, what it's like working with a collaborative partner in which Greg and I, when we first did this, this was just not even a pipe dream. It was just an investigation that started on a bar napkin. Hmm. And, well, hey, I looked into this, and hey, I found this press. Well, hey, I did this, and, hey, you know? And we started researching and researching, and then all of a sudden when we had so much research it became intense, and all of a sudden it became time to like, all right, we're at the edge, let's do this. So, yeah. this is what we did. And, and this is a little bit, um, this is some scandal I'll go ahead and reveal. <laughs> so, Greg and I, we were getting set for the uh, printmaking conference that was going to be held in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And we knew it was coming, our school was hosting it. And so, rather than getting super involved with our school when all these printmakers were going to do here, what Greg and I did is we took out extra
0: student loans and we rented a storefront for that whole semester. Whoa. Right? And so we rented this old bank,
1: and we converted the bank entirely into a gallery. And what we were proposing, and we proposed to our graduate committee and faculty, that we wanted to do this to uh, create a artist-run space under the safety umbrella while in graduate school to learn gallery culture. And so we were going to go to Chicago, see what we learned, and then mimic the same thing in our gallery. Right now we. We're going to pay ourselves back for the gallery by charging our fellow classmates in the MFA program or even the undergrads for exhibition space on our calendar. So every weekend of that whole semester, we have an exhibition. And in charging them, that's what is our overhead for our rent. And in Mm -hmm. doing so, man, we learned a lot about gallery culture, not only with, you know, doing the mailing list, the catalog, the insurance, but we were on the up and up. And it was really awesome. Uh, Our faculty, uh, we had written proposals for assistance for undergrad assistantships uh, to help us with the gallery, and we got them. And so while Greg and I were in grad school, we both had undergraduate assistants. And man, the other grad students got kind of pissed about that, but it was awesome. (laughs) And so while we were there, and we had the space, we did this with the entire intent of SGC. We knew the conference was going to come to Madison, Mm -hmm. and so we. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. The different stuff, you know? Yeah. And we, Cannonball Press got their own. Country, getting print demonstrations, uh, historical lectures on print, making contemporary trends, sharing art from over 200 artists wow. across the country. And uh, we are booking shows, we are booking uh, visits for this fall. Uh, please take our card and contact us. And we put that out there, huh. and we got about 30 schools hit us up. Dang. And then, mind you, Stephen, when the school said yes. Yeah. All we had was the Word document. We didn't
2: have any of the stuff but our research.
0: And oh, like, well, shoot. Man, it, it comes time. And so
1: we like literally sold our guitars. We took an extra job as banquet servers, and we took out extra student loans. And then we went and we bought the press that we had huh. and then we put in our car, right?
2: Yeah. We got our
1: press as a, Rembrandt, a Pelican etching Rembrandt press. The thing was way
0: too big for what we were doing. It was two thousand oh pounds. My truck went
1: down like a low rider. If I had a speed bump, man, there <laughs> would be uh, uh, sparks popping out. history uh, um, about the press, which we still own, that joker, we got that press from
2: uh, a couple of printmakers who had just got together that wanted to sell the press because they were gonna buy a new one right. to start up a new place in Pittsburgh
0: and that ended up being none other than Tugboat. Um, oh. Print shop. Legit. Yeah, yeah. So that's where we got our press from. That's like the
2: lineage there, man. There's like all kinds of like connections to everybody, you know. Ah. So we
1: had, we got the press. We we had to really like come up with some engineering to be able to pull it in and out, similarly to a a hospital gurney uh, comes out of an ambulance. We uh-huh. would have the legs kick out. Yeah. And if your viewers can, uh, listeners can uh, check out the YouTube you can see like the really old school version of us doing so in a pickup truck. And you can also see later a van, and you can see the tour bus, so you see the evolution of drive-by press. Nice. So after we got to those schools and we said, yeah, man, it was winter, it was cold, and we were like, let's get out of Wisconsin. So we took off, Stephen, and <laughs> we would get to schools and we would give a demonstration, we'd talk about the history, we'd show all the prints. And before we took off, I emailed Tom Huck, I emailed Dennis, I emailed Bill Fick, the Hancock brothers. I emailed all the crew and I said, hey, I'm going over here. I'm going to do this, man. And I don't know if we're going to make any money, but we're not even trying right now. We don't even know what we're doing. We just got press. We hope we're not going off the road and we're going to die. you want to send us some prints? Heck yeah, man. Everybody sent us prints. Everybody sent us prints. So we would roll up into a school like gangbusters, man. We would throw (laughs) prints everywhere and people's minds just got blown. Yeah, And then to... We started running out of money after we finished that semester. We got back with literally like 40 bucks and we thought we did something good. And we weren't trying to market this, man. It wasn't something that was gonna be marketing, but it wasn't something that you can do outside academia. So we had to say, man, how how can we commodify this so we can make money out of it and uh, maintain? And the thing was, man, the thing that did it, t-shirts. Yeah printing wood blocks on t-shirts man wood blocks hadn't been printed up on fabric since way back oh.
2: you
1: know since paper since paper came around there was no longer a need to print on textiles
0: right okay you know? yeah so that went the way of the buffalo and at
1: no time had anybody ever mass-produced any relief block textiles for
0: t-shirts specifically for graphic teeth nobody Dang. had done that so they innovated and that's innovating like crazy
1: It was on the fly. It was literally people bringing us stuff. Can you print on this? Can you print on this? And this kid brought this t-shirt out, and we were in Cincinnati at the time. I know exactly
2: when it happened, and I know exactly what we printed. And printmaking artist from Dallas,
1: Texas, Nancy Palmieri, she Mm -hmm. gave us a woodblock of Hello Kitty in like a bikini bathing suit. (laughs)
2: So Hello
1: Kitty's all leaning back like a supermodel, and
2: and
1: she's got a fine little body right there, and uh, these kids just it. it had this beautiful floral background, wallpaper behind it. And it was like, you know, twelve
2: by sixteen and this kid had the shirt and he was like, Goodness, can, you know, can you print on this? Wow. And I
1: was like, Yeah. And we print on it and we were like, That looks amazing. <laughs> then two days later the kid emailed us and be like, Hey, yeah, I watched it and it's almost all gone. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we were like, Okay, I was like, All right, so we need to do some modifications. So we got a hotel that weekend mm-hmm. and we printed. Man, we went to Hobby Lobby, we bought shirts And Greg and I made modifications to the ink to affect its viscosity. Right, right. To affect its drying and the amount of dryer that we put into it. Mm -hmm. And we nailed it, man. We nailed it. We got it down to where that thing can dry in 12 hours and this ink was crisp and it was gonna hold. And that changed our fortunes, man. That changed it big time. We would go to a school, right, now, and the school would be a poor school, and they could only afford to pay us $250. Right. Which is nothing to pay an artist that's
0: traveling 600 miles to get to you. Yeah. Right? That's going to be so tough. We're traveling <laughs> there, and we're they're letting us set up in front of their student union. And this was the beautiful part, is that the last thing we wanted to do is come into somebody's print shop and print t-shirts in their printmaking shop, because that's preaching to the choir. Right. We're not yeah. exposing
1: printmaking to anybody that isn't in contact with it already. Mm-hmm. What we'd rather do is take our press and go to the student union, where people who don't even know what fine art is are hanging out, and let us blow their mind graphically. Yeah, And buddy. that's what we would do, and we would have a line of people getting shirts, and we would. These are college kids, man. Yeah. So we'd be like, "Hey, if you go get your own t-shirt, we'll only charge you five dollars. If you get one of our Hobby Lobby shirts." In. and people are like I look at the dorms I'll be right back <laughs> and they come back and I mean we started making money and then what we did was really some almost like on the job training for many of the schools we visited. because we were like hey get your print club together you guys got a tabletop put it on a, something with wheels get it out here and get your print club to make money and y'all take your ass to the conference like do oh, this we yeah. don't do this and it's." Snowballed, man. And every school that we went to, more and more schools. right we wanted to do 13 schools for our thesis. Greg and I, overall, right now as of today, and this is 11, almost 12 years later, we have been to over
0: 275 schools. Get out of here, America. Man. America. Yeah. Isn't that insane?
1: I mean, not together. There's been a time that we split up, and he had a crew on the East Coast. I had a crew on the West Coast. We've had Brian O'Malley and Nick Alley. Uh, go on tour together, and we've had a number of printmakers kind of intern
0: with us on the road and do these uh like sabbatical kind of like road trips with us, man. Heck yeah! And just gathering prints all along the way. Yeah. And in doing so, like like I said, it spread like wildfire. And
1: you know, I, I'd be candid with you, Greg. Was like, hey, Joseph, we're gonna show everybody how to do this, and then people ain't gonna ask
2: us to come anymore. <laughs> and
1: like, what are we doing here? And we're like, man, I don't know. Right at that moment, when we reached that crossroads, when we felt like, you know, we're giving the the baby away, we got approached by uh, gambling Artist Colors, and they had just started producing uh, some printmaking inks, Right. and we met their rep, and her name was Brianna, she was amazing, and she was like, you guys got something here, and we worked with their engineers, and we got our own ink, man. We got our drive by black that you can... uh, Order from directly from our site, or you can add your major printmaking suppliers, uh, Tackish, iMacLean's, uh, um, they carry it as well, man. And I
2: absolutely love it. It is our mix that we came up with, yeah. on the
1: road. It's identical, it holds up. It's you know, as a professor now, I have my students use it like it's the ink in my shop. You right. know? And that's like that's the one thing that makes me feel like we made it through this without being
0: a lowest (laughs) (laughs) Sennifilber. Right, yeah, because you have to, there's a business part of it that you have to, it's like the nature of the beast. But um, I will say, like, there was this guy in Portland, Oregon, that would take his uh, etching blocks, and he would print his shirts with his etching blocks, like his, like, legit Uh copper etching plates. And I walked Uh by, and I was like, dude, are these these screen printed, right? And he's like, no, these are just my etching blocks. And it took me, like, three years to, like, find, like, I finally got a part of the, I moved back to Lexington from Portland, and I became a part of the Blue Guys printmakers. And I had some blocks that I've had, and I printed it on my shirt, and it just blew my mind. And then I found out about you all, and it wasn't until, like, 2012, but I was like, oh, my gosh, these guys have been doing it, like, legit for, like, years. (laughs) And then, like, two years later, Drive By Black comes out. And that year, I was like, okay, I'm I'm not going to be a painter because I'm I'm just a terrible painter, just straight up. I'm not good at it, but I'm really good at printmaking because that was all through undergrad. People were like, you need to work on your prints. Please, God. (laughs) Like, put down the paintbrush. And so 2014, I start printmaking, and I'm carving up my little vinyl cut blocks, and I'm just loving it. I feel like I've really that's the art I need to be doing all along. And then your uh-huh. ink comes out and then I'm using it to print shirts with it and they drive all fast and it looks good. And people are like, man, I can't get screen printed shirts this good. And I tell them about your ink and then I just promote it all over the place because it just really for lack of a better term. It just really changed my life. Cause like I just, I was struggling uh-huh. like as an artist. Okay, like, I yeah, was thank like, you so
1: much. That's something we just like, like, I, I'd love to hang my hat on that ink because it just, you know. When we did Drive-By, um, the whole time we were doing it, Stephen, it
0: didn't feel like, I didn't keep a diary. I, okay. mean, I didn't have photographs, but this is pre-Facebook. <laughs> uh, yeah. Drive-By Press was happening when MySpace
1: was happening, you know?
2: Yeah. And, like, Top 8, and Tom was one of them. Like, you know, I didn't have a lot going on.
0: We would have way more followers. if we were doing drive-by press like right now. Oh, yeah, You know, than it
1: was back then just because of that ability to reach uh, so many. Because the whole time we were doing it, every semester we went out, we thought, this is it. This is the last semester. This is the last semester. You know? And over the summers, we were like, now what are we going to do? And it was, after a couple of years, we got approached one summer by a marketing company. Right. And they said, hey, uh, guys, you know, can you do this? for you know R.J. Reynolds can you do it for Camel cigarettes? and we were like no but this wouldn't be pure we're doing it for academic and you know research reasons and they were like hey slitting a check across the table like we can pay you this much I was like oh yes we can do this <laughs> What do we start? what do we do and they wanted us to uh, carve blocks and tour with indie rock bands over the summer Oh shoot. and we would print the shirts uh, at each one of the stops on tour so we did an extensive tour with the indie rock band Spoon we got to tour all over America with Spoonman, and we got to lug that giant, giant Rembrandt press into, like, Webster Hall in uh, Manhattan, and Dang. we would have it all up on crates, so it looked like
0: rock and roll gear, right? Yeah. And the press would be uh, put up on top of a, a table that we had on
1: wheels, but when it got taken off, it was put down on the ground on a little crate with wheels, and they put another box over it to protect it but in order to lift it up and down, they had these uh notches on the bottom with, with stands, and they would literally slide two um, fence posts through it, and the roadies would pick up the press, like the Ark of the Covenant, man.
0: Oh, Jay. Um,
1: uh, right the Lost and they would just like hold up the up the stairs, and they were like, what is in here? Like, That's a printing press. Like, we hate you guys. <laughs> and yeah. We Super and limited. When Pamela asked us to do this, man, they said, hey, can you guys do 250? Can you guys do 250 shirts a night? And Greg and I were like, what? 250 shirts a night and a gig every other night and sometimes two nights in a
0: row? Oh my we gosh. Were like,
1: uh, yeah, yeah, we can do it. Because, you we had never done that before, man. We had never printed those numbers. And Heck what no. we figured is, like, hey, you know what we'll do? We're going to get Sly. We know what. Are going to be popular with the people. Right. Preprint some of those and give us a running start. So let's preprint 75 and they'll
0: be ready to go. But the thing about it is, nobody wants a preprinted shirt. Right.
1: They want to see you do it. And you know what it is like because whenever you're printing with people and you're instructing them, when they pull that block off the paper or the shirt for the first time and you see that epiphany go off, man, and their eyes light up, that is addicting as a
2: printmaker. Yeah. Oh, yeah. and, like, I, that's my favorite part of my day, is when I pull a print
1: off a block. It don't matter how it comes out. Like, this is it, folks. This is it. This is going to be it. <laughs> like, it's a big deal, you know? Yeah. And it's never gone away. So, all these kids get it. Everyone wants it. That night, Greg and I hand-pulled 325
0: t-shirts. Get dude. out, man. That night, woke up with cramps, dude. My arms were just swollen like, Popeye. And,
2: moved,
0: and we were just laughing, man, because we could not believe that we did that. And about the fourth or fifth show we had acclimated and we could fly, man. We could yeah. really fly. Muscle memory. Really out. Yeah. That's legit, man. Um Yeah, I love I just love hearing your story and um I guess uh I'm gonna have to cut this a little short, but man, maybe we could set up another time to sure, do another interview but yeah uh, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about your story because it's it's just really inspiring to me and I think it's going to be really inspiring to others and uh, I just really appreciate it man and um, yeah uh, just everybody can uh, just like a quick shout out can you just shout out some of your Instagram and websites they can follow you on Sure, uh,
2: Instagram uh, DBT Joseph, and you can uh, see my work on uh, JosephLawson's.com. Also check out DriveByPress.com.
1: If you go to DriveByPress.com and you click on testimonials, you'll see all these different clients that Greg uh, has done. And so Greg has stayed within uh, the commercial and the industry marketing area of it. Where now I've gone into academia, but. Right. We still do games together, man, and this thing's still alive. So if you ever want to hear more stories or hear about process or
0: anything else, hit me up some time, man. I had a good time talking. Yeah, man. Thanks again. I really appreciate it, man. And uh, have a good one. And just wow, just keep it keep it going, man. <laughs> All right, buddy. Well spread the heat, man. Take care. Definitely, man. I'll see you. Bye. Right, bye bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Bluegrass Printmakers podcast. And also, thanks to Joseph Velasquez for being interviewed on the podcast. Also, you can check out more of his work at josephvelasquez.com. And that is J-O-S-E-P-H-V-E-L-A-S-Q-U-E-Z.com. And also, check him out at Velasquez Prince on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also check out drivebypress.com. Also check them out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can also find us at BG Printmakers on social media, and check out our website at bgprintmakers.org. And we always appreciate donations to help keep this podcast going. You can also like, comment, share, and subscribe to our podcasts uh wherever you get podcasts um and as well we are a 501c3 nonprofit and you can donate to our cause right on the homepage thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next episode